0: We are looking this evening at Exodus five verses one through six thirteen. Uh, it's sort of difficult to break this passage up, and I knew you probably didn't want me trying to preach on seven chapters, six six to seven chapters. But really, Exodus five through eleven are a single unit of how God is going to deal with Pharaoh, how God is going to use Moses as His servant in front of Pharaoh. And how God will ultimately bring the plagues on the Egyptians in order to cause Pharaoh to drive them out of Egypt and for God to deliver them so that they can come to the mountain and worship him. And so really this begins Moses going back to Egypt and the very beginning of God's dealings with Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. And so I thought I'd just take this brief introductory section in these two chapters, and just for the sake of time, look at Exodus five, one through six thirteen. I know as usual you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. Well, here in Exodus five, we now read after Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day, as when there was straw, and the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means, you shall by no means. Reduce the number of bricks, but your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil To this people, and you have not, and 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 you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, "Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of his land." God spoke to Moses and said to him, "I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty." But by my name, the Lord, or literally in Hebrew, it would be Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, recently I have been reading some through Samuel Rutherford's letters, the letters of Samuel Rutherford, and uh, many of the best Quotes in that book, and by the way, Charles Spurgeon said that when he died, he wanted everyone to know that the closest thing to inspired scripture in all of church history was Rutherford's letters. And you learn very quickly what a special individual Samuel Rutherford was and what an amazing pastor he was and how counterintuitive many of the things he wrote to his parishioners were. Many of them would be suffering great affliction And instead of telling them, hey, it's going to be okay. God's going to bring you through this, he would say things like his famous statement, grace grows best in winter. Grace grows best in winter. We don't like to hear that if we're honest. You know, sometimes you'll hear these super spiritual Christians almost desiring more suffering. That's not normal, nor is it godly. And yet, most Christians, when we do suffer, when we're put in the crucible of affliction, we really begin to buckle under it. And we realize how weak we are. And we realize that we're not what we wish we were, or maybe even what we think we are. Um, Israel becomes an example of that in these chapters. Remember, Israel has already received what Moses has said to them. Moses was... Afraid that they were not going to listen to him. And he had gone to Aaron. He had gone to the elders. And they had received everything that Moses had said. And notice the end of chapter four. Notice this. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. That is a glorious response. To what God had said through Moses. Israel believed, they rejoiced, they knew God had seen their affliction, and they bowed their heads and they worshipped him. And it would be helpful to us to remove all the number chapter divisions in our Bible, and all the verse number divisions, and just read a continuous account of what God has breathed out. And we would see that everything that Israel says in chapter 5... Is antithetical to what they did at the end of chapter four, because when Moses goes to Pharaoh at God's commissioning and Pharaoh hardens his heart and he increases the opposition and the oppression against God's people, they buckle under it. And instead of turning to the Lord and instead of crying out to God, and instead of knowing that God had said he would deliver, they, com- they go to Pharaoh, they complain against Moses. Moses complains to the Lord, and it's a very different scene than what we saw at the end of chapter four. And there are loads of lessons for us in this chapter. There are things we're going to learn from Pharaoh. There are things we're going to learn from Moses, and there are things we're going to learn from the people of Israel. I want us to consider as we look at this section together, three things. First, I want us to consider the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, I then want us to consider the complaint of the people of Israel. And then I want us to consider the deliverance promised by God, the confrontation, the complaint. And the deliverer will notice we don't know how Moses got so easy access to the most powerful man in the world. But we went from God finishing his calling on Moses's life. And Moses finally responds to God's calling after after raising opposition, after opposition, after opposition. And then, as we saw saying, ultimately, Lord, please send somebody else. And then Moses finally comes to the place. Where he he is satisfied to yield himself to God's word and will. And he has gotten the elders and he has gotten Aaron. And God has said to take Aaron, take the elders and go to Pharaoh. And as we come into chapter five, we're told afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now. It is possible that Moses got access to Pharaoh because there were still people alive who knew him so many decades before when he had fled Egypt. It's probably likely that there were still some that remembered Moses having grown up in the palace and then having fled the country. And so they bring Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting here? is that God had said in the previous chapter that Moses was to take Aaron and the elders. And here there is no mention of the elders. Now, my educated guess is that they got fearful and they said, well, why don't you guys just go? And so the elders actually don't come with Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron go it alone. And yet they go in obedience to God. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable because up until this point, Moses has been very fearful And very cowardly from the beginning of the time we saw him in Egypt, even through the call of God, there is so much fear and trepidation in him. There's there's even cowardice in Moses. And now Moses goes and you get a sense that there is confidence and courage and calmness in Moses going to Pharaoh. You don't get the sense that Moses is fearful. You don't get the sense that there is any more trepidation. And what's amazing Just as an aside, is that Moses becomes an example to all believers. You know, um, we are often by nature afraid of men. We fear men. The Bible has much to say about the fear of men. If we're honest, most of us, even the best of us, are fearful when we witness. If if we said we weren't, there would be something wrong with us. And that's why the Bible is always giving us examples of those who at one time were not, and yet who God made into the individual that he wanted them to be. And what was the secret to Moses' courage in going to Pharaoh? What was the secret? Well, notice, it was that Moses knew who the Lord was. When he goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord. Notice what Moses says in verse three. Moses and Aaron said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. What changed Moses into a man that enabled him to go and stand before the most powerful ruler in the world, knowing that his life could have been on the line and to do it with a sort of serenity was that he had met with God. God had met with him and he and Aaron could go and say, the Lord has met with us. That, by the way, is the secret. That, that's what changes us. When when we've had an encounter with Christ, when we've communed with the Lord and we realize that the Lord has met with us, then we become like uh, Peter and John who say, we cannot help but speak the things we've seen and heard. Moses here is essentially exhibiting that for us. We have met with the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and he has told us to give you this message. It's a really beautiful picture. Now, Pharaoh is an unbeliever, and Pharaoh is a picture of all unbelievers in their response by nature to the preaching of the gospel. Moses comes with a message of God's deliverance. And he comes, very interesting, he comes in a a gentle manner to Pharaoh. I've always, this always struck me as significant that the first encounter Moses has with Pharaoh and the last encounter are very different. There is just a gentleness in Moses' approach here. There is a severity in the last word that Moses speaks. And I think there's a picture here for How the gospel ought to be shared with unbelievers. It ought to, first of all, be shared in gentleness. Um, There are too many who are zealous for preaching the gospel that have a legal spirit to them. They come with harsh and and severe tones to people. And yet notice when Moses comes, he comes and he simply says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now. Jonathan Edwards, listen to this. He reflects on this and he says, God first made known his will to Pharaoh in a mild and gentle, manner. Edwards said God first made his will known to Pharaoh in a mild and gentle manner. But that was so far from being effectual that he was only the worst for it. Instead of letting the people go, he only increased their burdens. You see, this is this is oftentimes what happened. We're going to get a we're going to get an inlet into the soul Of an unbeliever like Pharaoh, who's going to harden his heart at every beckoning offer that God is offering him. I mean, the Lord is essentially giving Pharaoh an opportunity to repent and to get on board with what he's doing. Um, Now, Phil Rykin puts it this way Pharaoh was an unbeliever, he was ignorant of God's identity, resistant to God's authority. And malevolent toward God's community. Let me say that again. Riken says Pharaoh was an unbeliever. He was ignorant of God's identity. He said, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. No one spoke truer than Pharaoh. He did not know the Lord. He did not know Yahweh. Uh, Riken says he was ignorant of God's identity. He was resistant to God's authority. And he was malevolent towards God's community. Now, those become marks, don't They. In an extreme way in Pharaoh, they become characteristics of everyone who does not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Um, they do not know the Lord, who he is. They resist his authority and they hate his church. Um, There's really an interesting picture here for us as we look at Pharaoh. But I want us to consider what's going on inside Pharaoh, because this might be lost on us. Why? Why is Pharaoh so literally hell-bent on oppressing God's people? Why, why is Pharaoh hell-bent on increasing the oppression? Why is he so bent on resisting God's will? Now, besides the obvious fact that we've already been told that the Lord is going to harden his heart, so in the eternal decree, God de- determined to raise up Pharaoh to show his power The hardening of his heart was going to be so God could demonstrate his mighty power and make his glory known and his name known. And yet, and yet Pharaoh is every bit just like every other fallen sinner by nature. And he loves his sin. He loves his sin. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards said, i had never thought about this. Edwards said, for Pharaoh in refusing to let the people go, refused to let go the objects of his lust. Listen carefully. He refused to let go the objects of his lust. In keeping them in bondage, he kept his sins. Listen, his pride was gratified in his dominion over that people. His pride was gratified in his dominion over that people. Edward says he was loath to let them go because he was loath to part with his pride. His covetousness was also gratified by the profits he had by their slavery. It was his pride in oppressing them. It was his covetousness in the profit that he got from their slavery. Edward said he would not let them go because he would not part with the objects of his covetousness. I thought that was incredibly instructive. When the gospel is offered to individuals, there is really one reason why they reject it. It's because they do not want to let go of their sins. They love their sins so much That they would rather harden their hearts and perish than come to the God who is full of grace and mercy, who would give them liberation from their sins. Now, I was thinking about it. Pharaoh is just like the chief priests and the scribes that we heard about this morning. Why were they so hateful to Christ? Because they love their power. They love their positions. They love their sin. And so they would not embrace the savior. They would rage against him rather than come to him and trust in him. And so Pharaoh is a picture here and and a picture of those, all those who rejected the gospel. Now, in response, Pharaoh ups the ante. He shows more hostility to God's people. He increases their affliction. He adds to their oppression. He deals cruelly with the people of God. And, And as I've already noted at the outset this evening... Uh, The people don't respond well. Um, Their foremen uh, go to Pharaoh and they appeal to him. And he hardens his heart against them. And then notice verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said... The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They went to Pharaoh and asked him to be merciful. They went to Moses and Aaron and complained against them. But there was one person they didn't go to. They did not go to the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? The Lord has heard their cries in their affliction. The whole opening section of Exodus is about how God has heard and seeing he has listened to their cries and he has raised up a deliverer in his time. And yet now that deliverer is is beginning the work that God has sent him to do. And instead of waiting on the Lord and trusting him, instead of crying out to the Lord, they go to their oppressor looking for deliverance and they complain against God's servants. Um, you know, I have seen this. In my pastorate, where people have some hardship, a loved one is taken from them, or some incredibly difficult affliction has fallen on them from the hand of the Lord. And instead of turning to the Lord, they get bitter, they complain, they wallow in their misery, and then they get mad at their ministers, even though their ministers couldn't do anything for them other than pray for them and with them. Um, I met a man 20 years ago he was a police officer in New Jersey and we were out witnessing on the boardwalk and one night the Lord led me in his path and he said to me you know I'm angry with God for taking my dad and I thought oh wow that was more than I expected someone to say and why would God take my dad? And he just kept going on and there was so much anger. And I finally said to him, I said, you know, you're asking the wrong question. You should ask why God gave his son rather than why God took your dad. But it was at that point I realized just how much anger and bitterness people can get when the Lord sends trials and afflictions into their life. Remember what I said at the outset? Rutherford said, grace grows best in winter. And while we don't like that, everything God is doing here, even even the increase of oppression from Pharaoh to the people is all part of God's plan to deliver them. And their work is to wait on the Lord and to take him at his word. Now, there is a lesson there for us, because um, if you've been through hardship and i've had hard trials in my life as i said already you know that we are not inclined to rejoice in tribulation we are not inclined by nature to to patiently go through and endure those hardships we are inclined to grow bitter and to complain i know that from first hand experience um, we have to catch ourselves we have to train ourselves We have to train ourselves to go back to God's word and to find comfort in it and to to say, well, I don't know how to reconcile what's going on right now. I know that God has said this and I'm going to take him at his word. That is so much what God calls us to in the Christian life. My circumstances don't seem to square with what God has said in his word, but I know that what he said is true. And therefore, I can go through this circumstance reading it in light of what he said, not trying to pit it against it and drive me further from him. You know, the Psalms are perfect for this, aren't they? I I was interested tonight when we read the call to worship and I had not planned this and I want to read it to you. How much it fits with this message here. Think about David, all the hardship David went through, all the oppression. God had said, you are going to be the king. He had anointed him. And then David spends uh, well over a decade being pursued by Saul, living in caves and dens, hiding out for his life. That doesn't seem to square with what God said, that you're going to be king. And yet David knew how to apply himself to who God is. And how to apply himself to the promises of God and to apply himself to God as his God. And so I was fascinated here. You know, David is fleeing from Saul in Psalm 18. And listen to this. I love you, O Lord, my strength. He prays, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now listen, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You know, while the Lord works his plan out perfectly, and there's no plan B in God's eternal plan, I do wonder if Israel had gathered, and if they had called on the Lord, and if they had sung his praises, and they had done what David did there in Psalm 18. If maybe God would have shortened the process in delivering them, they didn't do that. They complain, they grumble, and they become they become an example to us to guard against. Um, you know, we have to prepare ourselves to suffer. It's, it's never just going to happen in the moment if we're not preparing. How will I respond? You know, I've often thought about Job. Job didn't learn to fall down and worship when God took his children and say, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away because that was the first time he ever did that. Job didn't learn those things in that moment. Job put into practice what he was already prepared for because he coached himself in the truth of God's word. He knew that his circumstances didn't take away from the goodness of God or the trustworthiness of God. Or the fact that God deserved to be worshipped. Israel should have known better. That may sound harsh to you because the oppression that they had was very severe. And, and that may sound like a sort of stoic response. It's a, it is a pastoral response in the deepest way possible that we've got to prepare ourselves for the affliction that God may bring. Into our lives. Now, I want us to consider finally the deliverer. We've seen the confrontation. We've seen the complaint. And now I want us to consider the deliverer. Well, Moses goes to the Lord because he's been complained against. And now he complains to the Lord. And Moses says, Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you even send me now? Moses is starting to waver. Moses is allowing the complaints of the people to have a negative impact on him. By the way, that happens. Let me just say that when we're negative to one another in complaining, we wear off on each other. When we build each other up, it is for our good. I know that because my wife has to stop me from complaining. Let's just have a little confession time here because it brings her down instead of me building her up. Here, Moses is being affected by the complaints of the people. We'll see that later, how often that happens. Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. Now, what's interesting. Is that the Lord deals with Moses in incredible gentleness. Now, I've really been struck as I've read through scripture, how often. How often. The Lord deals gently with his people when they're wavering in in doubts or fears, but they're his people. Um, You know, the disciples, you see this played out in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. The disciples are always arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus just comes and puts a little child in their midst. He doesn't deal harshly with them. He deals severely with the Pharisees. He deals gently with his own, even when he's bringing strong correction to them. And here the Lord is going to explain to Moses what it means for him to be the deliverer. What did Pharaoh need to hear? That God is the deliverer and redeemer of his people. What did Israel forget and need to be reminded of? That God is the deliverer and redeemer of his people. What did Moses now forgotten? That God is the deliverer and the redeemer of his people. And so the Lord is going to reveal again to Moses who he is and what he's going to do. Notice this. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now, there may be a sense in which the Lord is correcting Moses as if Moses thought the deliverance was up to him. And he's forgotten that the battle is the Lord's. And so the Lord says, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. With a strong arm and an outstretched hand, he will drive my people out of Israel. And then notice what the Lord does in revealing himself as the deliverer. And this is so instructive for us. The very first thing that the Lord does is he reminds Moses of who he is based on his covenant name that he revealed to Moses. Notice this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, that is the covenant Lord, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. Now, the first thing that God is doing is... Explaining what kind of God he is. I am the covenant Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means that God is a God of promise and that God will always make good on his promises. So, um, whenever we doubt or fear if the Lord is for us when we're in the valley, we need to remember that God is a God of promises. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How do I know? That God will never leave me nor forsake me if I'm in Christ, because Christ was forsaken for me, but also because God has sworn by an oath, the writer of Hebrews said, sworn on himself who cannot change, who does not change, that he would do as he has promised and everything God says God has guaranteed will happen. Now, that is that is the anchor for our souls, that in Jesus Christ, God has done everything he has promised. This is why Paul can say in him, all the promises of God are yes. And in him, amen to the glory of God, that they are all guaranteed. When Jesus says, "Lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That is an absolute guarantee. You may not feel it. Your circumstances may seem to contradict it. But God has said it. And he is the covenant Lord. And that means he will not change, nor will he renege on what he has promised. That is incredible. No one else under the sun has that sort of God, nor that sort of confidence at their disposal that God will be with them. How could David go through what he went through being chased by Saul for well over a decade and open up Psalm 18 by saying, My God, my rock, my refuge, my deliverer, because he understood that God was his Lord, was his covenant God, and that God was going to do for him as he had promised. That's not wishful thinking. That is not naive and gullible. That is the anchor for the souls of God's people. And we need that more than anything. Israel had forgotten that. Moses had forgotten that. And so as God reveals himself as the deliverer, he first reminds Moses of his name. Now, let me just say this um, as an aside here. The Lord also says that he is going to deliver his people for his name's sake. So the deliverance is going to be a vindication of his name. The deliverance is going to be a proclamation of his name. Because ultimately what the Lord is going to do in delivering Israel in the Exodus is foreshadowing the gospel and what Christ is going to do in that greater exodus through his death and resurrection. And where is God's name most fully made known? It's in the work of redemption in Christ crucified. Where is God most glorified? It's in the work of redemption in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so God makes his name known because God is going to magnify his name and deliver his people for his namesake. Notice verse seven. He said to tell Israel, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, because I'm going to do as I have promised. Now, he's going to reiterate, and I don't want to spend a long time on this, but he's going to reiterate the promises he's already made. Notice. Verse four, I will establish for cause to stand my covenant um, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Notice he says, I have remembered my covenant. The end of verse five, he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you. I will take you to be my people. And notice verse eight. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. Now. There is an interesting thing in the Old Testament that you will see as we go through the book of Exodus and as you read on through the rest of the Old Testament. God is always going back to his first promises and he's always building on them. Everything is rooted in what he does in Genesis 315, but everything is very much focused on the promise to Abraham and God is building on that promise. And God is saying, not only am I going to do something right now for you, I am doing what I told Abraham I was going to do so long before. Isn't that amazing? God not only remembers his promises, he does for his people now what he promised to do for his people then. And he is always building on and developing his promises until Christ comes, keeps all the promises in himself, fulfills everything in himself, secures all the covenant blessings of God for his people and, and this is where we know, this is where we know that the promises are secure, as I've already said, when we look at the cross, when we see Jesus Christ crucified, we should be assured that God has remembered his covenant promises and made good on them for us and for his people out of every tongue, tribe, nation and language. And that means, let me just say that tonight, that means when we look at the state of the church in America, when we look at the state of the church in the world and we start to get discouraged and we we don't see great revival and we start to just get discouraged over the state of the church everywhere, we need to take a step back and we have to say, you know, this God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. This God. God. Promised to deliver his people out of Egypt. This God promised to gather Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. This God has shed His blood on the cross to redeem a people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. And that means that that is a guarantee. To what degree we don't know, but it is a guarantee that God will have a people in every nation who will sing His praises, who will be His people. He is actively fulfilling that promise. You know, when we think about world evangelism, we tend to think about this country or that country or that country. And about 20 years ago, when I was at the boardwalk in New Jersey and we were doing those evangelistic summers there. And one night in particular, I was watching as people were going by and meeting people and I met Israelis and Egyptians and I met people from the Middle East, other uh, Islamic countries, and I met people from France, and I met people from Spain and South America. And I thought the nations are right here at our doorsteps. Missions are not just about going to foreign countries. They're right in front of us. And, And that we ought to have great confidence that God is going to fulfill his covenant promises and go forth with the gospel to those right in front of us. Who so desperately need to hear the gospel and so desperately need to come into covenant union with the covenant word through the covenant son, Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to also consider with me finally that everything God says here, he is saying, and this is just by way of looking down from above everything he's revealing, that he is full of compassion. God is not only doing this to make his name known. He's doing it because he's driven by compassion. What was driving Pharaoh to oppress God's people was hatred. What is driving the Lord to deliver his people? Compassion. You know, I was thinking about this. Pharaoh says, make bricks without straw. Find your own straw. Make bricks up your quota. Do the same amount. He's he's increasing their burdens and the people are feeling those burdens and the lord says i've come to deliver you and you know when we look at when we look at the lord jesus and we hear everything he says my mind immediately went to matthew 11 and jesus stands and he says come unto me come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The burden that Israel was feeling is meant to serve as a picture of the weight that we feel under the guilt of our sin, the weight of the law, the pressures of life, the way the unbelieving world treats us. And and when we feel those weights. And those burdens, and I know that you have felt weights and burdens in your soul, because I have in mine. We have to hear the same voice of this God talking to Moses, saying in the flesh, come unto me and I will give you rest for your souls. Um, I don't know what the Lord has in store for us. There's a part of me that hates preaching messages like this because I don't know what's around the corner. But I know that it's true. And I know that we need to learn these truths and have them deeply ingrained into our hearts now so that if and when the Lord brings us into seasons of affliction, we know how to respond. Notice just as a sad aside, Moses goes back to the people, but they did not listen to Moses. It's so tragic. The Lord has said, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's why I'm going to do it. And the people do not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Nevertheless, the Lord continues. Isn't that marvelous? The Lord doesn't stop what he's promised to do because of their sin. And there is a word there for us. I'll leave you with this tonight. You know, there are many times we sin that we regret sinning. And we can start to fall prey to the idea that maybe God is done with us. Because we've out sinned his grace. Now, we should be afraid of presuming on his grace. And we should fear sinning against him because of what it does to us and to others. And yet, here's the good news. The Lord was not done with Israel. You've got to take comfort in that. He is the deliverer. He is not the deliverer because you've done good enough. He is the deliverer of sinners. That's what he wants Israel to learn. That's what he wanted Moses to learn. That's what he wants us to learn. And then he becomes to us the God of comfort. When we go through affliction, we can trust in him. I hope that you'll be encouraged with this word tonight and that you'll reflect on the lessons we learned from Pharaoh and Moses and Israel. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the same God who revealed yourself to Moses, who tonight is revealing yourself to us, together with your Son and Spirit. We thank you that you are the covenant Lord, that you are our God, our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. We pray that you would give us the same spirit that you gave David, that we would have confidence in the day of affliction, that we would be able to say with David, I will call on the name of the Lord, For he will deliver me. We pray, our God, that you would stir us up to see all that you have already done for us in Christ, how you have already fulfilled your covenant, how you have fulfilled those covenant promises, and that we have a sure and steady anchor for our soul. We pray that you would also make us zealous, Lord, to take the gospel to the lost and that you would give us confidence that you are fulfilling your promises to redeem the nations. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.